You're listening to Agile Next, the next generation Agile talk show. I'm Daniel Gulo. And I'm Stephen Forte. Each week, we ask industry leaders to share their past experiences with Agile practices and to provide their insights into where Agile is heading to next. The show is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and by visiting our website at www.agilenext.tv. This episode is brought to you by Applebrook Consulting and Fresco Capital. Whatever your Agile needs, Applebrook Consulting can help with training and coaching. Visit our website at www.apple-brook.com. Fresco Capital is a global venture capital firm focusing on entrepreneurs building global businesses. Visit our website at fresco.vc. Episode 10, August 18th, 2016. Today on the podcast, we have Steve Smith. Steve Smith is a three-time entrepreneur and software developer with a passion for building quality software as effectively as possible. Steve has published several courses on Pluralsight, some topics including DDD, solid design patterns, and software architecture. He's a Microsoft MVP and a frequent speaker at developer conferences. As a successful entrepreneur, Steve is offering mentoring and training for teams who want to improve via Argilist.com. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Thank you. It's great to have you here. And um, we're really excited about some of the work that you've done as both uh, a startup entrepreneur, which you've built, I think it's three companies now, and you've sold them. And you've worked at an ISV alongside um, lots of people doing you know, packaged software that goes out the door. And you've also built a consulting company where you're doing by the hour and billing. How does your experience, you know, using Agile at those very, very different environments, um, was it consistent that your experience using Agile or did you have to um, make alterations? There, there were definitely alterations that I made and, and also my understanding of Agile has evolved over time. Um, so in, in addition to uh, XP and Scrum and Kanban, I've also, you know, read and followed a lot of the lean software development and now the lean startup things and those have influenced my opinions on them. Um, one of the biggest things that affects how well you're able to do Agile is how much buy-in you get from the client, uh, whether that's an internal or an external client. And I, I found that it's most successful when you have trust built with a client who is able to consider your development team an extension of their team and isn't trying to box you into like a fixed bid uh, contract where you know you negotiate everything up front and then you're expected to go off and build it and make sure it comes in under budget. I've I've never had great success with that style, which which I don't generally think of as being agile in any case. I've personally had some experience being agile on a startup and then getting acquired. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Not necessarily the the financials and details of getting acquired, but more once you are acquired by a larger organization, your smaller, more nimble organization is absorbed into the bigger one. What are the implications for the Agile team? Very specifically, you said something about the, you know, getting the buy-in from the product owners and things like that. So how did, how did that all affect it? Sure. So we, my wife and I, had a consulting company, Nimble Pros. And Nimble Pros had a number of clients, one of whom was Telerik. And eventually, uh, we were doing so much work for Telerik that they felt we could offer our services, not just to them, but also to their customers. So they acquired Nimble Pros, and we became their services division. Uh, and both Michelle and I went to work for them as as vice presidents for that division. The challenges weren't so much at the developer agile level because we still had 
uh, our own team was in our own office located in Ohio, you know, independent from the rest of the company. So it wasn't like we were absorbed into a, a larger uh, company where everybody kind of scattered and went to offices uh, within that larger group. The The only challenges that we really had in, in that integration, I think, were more at the organizational level. And Michelle and I both took it upon ourselves to try and shield our developers and our designers and our, our team members that were actually doing the work from as much of the, uh, I don't know, the the friction that occurs when you're uh, trying to run a small team within a larger organization. And and that was a good part of our job was basically providing a shield from from all the stuff coming down from above uh, and, and trying to grease the wheels to get things done um, inside this large organization and bureaucracy. And was that a um, consistent with any of the other acquisitions you've done as well? No, not too much because uh, the only other one that, that we've had that was really similar, there was two companies acquired by the same company and, and only I went to work for them, um, which was the Code Project. Uh, and the Code Project is itself a fairly small company. So, you know, I was reporting directly to the the founder and, and we had, you know, fewer than a couple dozen employees. So it, it was... It was pretty agile as an organization. It was very similar in size, and we didn't have that that kind of friction. So, Steve, we were talking a little bit about you know getting bids for clients and and so on. You've written an article uh, called "The Five Laws of Software Estimates," and that's been posted on numerous sites, including your own. So, talk a little bit about what your take is on those five laws for for providing estimates. Sure. So. The, the biggest thing, the first law, is that estimates are waste. And if you can avoid doing them at all or if you can get by with a, you know, back of a napkin, quick and dirty estimate, then you should because unless it's providing real business value, trying to come up with a, a very accurate, uh, in-depth estimate is almost always a waste of time. They're, they're usually wrong, which I think is the, the third law. Uh, and so you can't really consider them to be a promise or a forecast. They're – you know, they're just something that is a guess, and it's the the best guess someone has at a point in time. Um, but at any later point in time, they're, it's going to be different. And so the other thing is that estimates are are temporary; they're transient. Whatever I estimated for you two months ago isn't what I would estimate today for the same work because I know more today. I know more about the project. I know more about my skills, how I would approach it. I know more about the marketplace. Um, so all of these things add up to. Uh, an idea that you want your estimates to be as as small and quick as possible. If the estimate is important to a decision, you should re-estimate the thing, but do it as quickly as you can um, because they are important. The businesses do need them to make decisions, and that's the fifth law is that they're necessary. They're not just evil. Um, but, you know, that's, that's kind of the uh, three or four of the laws that are listed in that article. There's kind of a big movement these days called the no estimates movement. I think Woody's wheel is is heading that up along with several other folks. Um, but there's also the folks that think that you can do a a firm fixed priced bid even with an agile contract. So what are your what are your feelings on those two? I think fixed bid projects have merit when you have already done the exact same work before. And you are just doing it again for someone else. So if, if you're a company that you know has uh, sort of a cookie cutter way of doing something, and you can package that up as a service and then sell it to different clients, then you know based on which things they want that you offer off the menu, 
uh, you can quickly put together, you know, a, a reasonable fixed bid estimate that that includes some profit for yourself, and and probably do do it well because you've already done it before. Um, in my experience, most of the software that I build and, and the teams that I work with are building things that no one's ever built before. You know, it's not that they're uh, revolutionary, you know, super high tech things. It's just that the reason why someone hired us is because there isn't an off the shelf solution, and so we're building custom software based on a unique client's demands. And we've never done it before, and they've never done it before either. So we're we're kind of figuring it out as we go, and that's what Agile is all about. Is you you think your destination is a certain location, but as you go and you learn more, and on, you're on this journey with the customer, the place that you end up, which is the right place to be, isn't originally where you thought you were going anyway. So having a fixed bid that says I'm going to go from A to B doesn't help when you're ultimately going to end up at C and it's going to take a different amount of time than, than any of you thought. Sticking on the theme of estimates, because I think that is exactly right, is as you learn more about the project, your estimates get better. And I think that's part of your thesis. And with fixed bid, you, as you just said, you know, you don't, unless you're doing the exact same project, you don't, know, you don't know much about an estimate. And on your law of estimates, you refer to the cone of uncertainty. And you brought in my absolute favorite example of the cone of uncertainty, um, you know, a hurricane, a hurricane cone pattern. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I always coach people that the cone of uncertainty goes back to the mainframe era. It goes back 60, 70 years, yet it's equally applicable today in a very agile world. Sure. I mean, most of us have seen where the, the weather channel or whatever will show a hurricane and, and where they expect it to make landfall or where they expect it to be two, three, four days from now. And, you know, there's this increasing circle of where it might possibly be because they don't know and it might change. And that's exactly how it is for our software. You know, as we're building it, the where we expect we'll be a week from now or, or two weeks from now um, is you know a, a range, not a not a not a point on a on a graph, and that range grows the further out in time you go because of the number of factors that might come into play. I can't tell you how many times I've estimated that a task would take me an hour, and then something happens. You know, maybe my computer crashes and I have to spend the day rebuilding it. You know, it's not going to take an hour now because something unforeseen caused it to to take longer. Uh, and that kind of stuff happens, and it almost never happens that it suddenly makes your your hour estimate take five minutes. It's almost always something unforeseen that makes it take longer. So you have extensive experience working with various different clients, Steve. Talk about the most interesting engagement that you've ever worked on. The most interesting client engagement that I've worked on. My favorite clients are the ones that are looking for mentoring, and so we'll work together uh, either in a, in a conference room environment, either remotely or, or, or in person, looking at their code and refactoring it. And the most interesting thing to me is when the client like, has these aha moments, whether it's an individual dev or, or a team, where they're like, oh, wow, why weren't we doing that all along? Or, or you know, I, I, I see now, okay, that, that makes sense. And so I, I love that. And I love getting emails from people telling me that you know, they've watched a Pluralsight course and you know, it helped them. That's what that really excites me. The the specific things that the clients are doing, those are all over the board. We've got things where the client was building the the hardware and software necessary to drive oil pumps, and uh, uh, somebody would drive out on a truck and plug a tablet into the oil pump and pull pressure information off of it, um, which I thought was kind of cool, uh, and and was something that eventually I expect would just be you know powered by a cell tower repeater, so there wouldn't be F so many people having to drive trucks around. Um, I've had clients that do uh, memorials for funerals, 
um, and everything in between, e-commerce, news, different types of, of clients. But it's, it's that interaction with the team that I think is the most exciting for me. You've done a bunch of startups and service businesses, and then you were deployed to Iraq. And you had to pause running your business, and your wife took over running the business. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. That was kind of an interesting story. It was back a few years ago in, in the early part of the Iraq War in 2004. I had been in the National Guard uh, and had, had left and was in what was called the Inactive Ready Reserve, which is basically just a list of about 100,000 people that are mostly done with their military service but are still there in case you know World War III breaks out and we have to call people up. Um, and apparently Iraq qualified for that because they ended up calling me up out of the IRR uh, out of the blue to, to ship me over there and, and join a, a unit that was, had already been deployed as a, as a replacement, as a filler. Uh, I was an engineer lieutenant at the time. Uh, my job over there was to uh, go out each day with my platoon and look for unexploded ordnance or IEDs and destroy it so that the uh, insurgents and bad guys couldn't uh, turn it into more IEDs that would target our convoys or, or civilians. Uh, we worked closely with the explosive ordnance disposal teams, the EOD guys, but there weren't very many of them. There's only like two EOD people per uh, region in, in Iraq in the theater. Um, and so our company of engineers basically was support and security for them and, and also operated independently. So while I was there, I didn't have a lot of direct internet access except for what I was able to do myself. Um, at the, the one base where I spent most of my time, I actually negotiated with some, some local Iraqi vendors to put a satellite dish on top of my housing trailer so that I could get Wi-Fi access for my platoon. And it, it wasn't cheap, but we, we split it 30 ways, and it, it wasn't too bad for a few months. And it, it managed to get us uh, internet access without us having to go to one of those shared tents where you got 15 or 20 minutes at a time and had to wait in line with everybody to borrow 10 computers for the whole base. As far as running businesses while I was gone, you know, there was really no way I could do much of that. So I had about uh, four weeks notice from when they told me that I had I was being called up until I had to deploy. And my wife, Michelle, is a veterinarian who had been working with me on, on ASPalliance.com and our, our ad network business at that time. Uh, and it was taking more and more of her time to the point where she ended up leaving the, the vet practice um, partly to to work on the business, partly because we'd recently you know had our first child and and she wanted to spend more time with her. Uh, so it worked out well that she'd been working full time on the business with me for about mm, eight months when when I had to leave. Uh, and so she took it over and and ran the business while I was gone, uh, which was you know a lot of stress on her, not it not being her field or anything. Uh, but but she did a great job, and when I came home, you know, she continued running it, and I pr pretty much just took on the technology side of it, and we grew that business, and you know, eventually we we sold it, as you've already mentioned. Yeah, not just the stress of running a brand new business, but the stress of having you deployed, I'm sure, was a, a big toll on her at the time. Yeah, it definitely was. I mean, honestly, I think many times it was less stressful for me, because um, one of the interesting things while I was in Iraq is you don't have a lot of other you know, things begging for your time, uh, you know, that's, it was before social media and all that anyway, but um, also, you know, there's not a lot of access, even with the, the Wi-Fi that I was able to procure. So, you know, at night, instead of thinking, oh, I should work on this blog post, oh, I should, you know, add this feature to my business, I was thinking, okay, am I all set for tomorrow? I have to get up at five, you know, all my guys have what they need, great, all right, I can just go to bed. And, you know, there was no real stress at that time. 
Whereas, you know, my wife, she's wondering where I am and if I'm safe and how things are going and how to juggle the kid and the business and everything else. And so I think in many cases, the spouses of the military have at least as much stress as the soldiers and, and sailors and everyone do. Yeah, that, that's an amazing perspective. You would you would think that um, it would be the other way around, but you're absolutely it sounds like you're absolutely correct. And and we, we've actually had a, a bunch of combat veterans on the show already, and they talk about some of the lessons that they've learned in the military that they brought back home with them, you know, lessons specifically around agile and engaging with, um, you know, sometimes people are using agile methodologies around uh, planning in a, in a very small group and things like that. Are there any lessons that you had in Iraq um, specifically around agile that you brought back when you came when you came home? We operated in what I would think is a fairly agile fashion where we would just have every morning uh, a leaders meeting, um, talk about what the, what the mission was for that day. Uh, and, you know, then I would go and I would brief the platoon and let them know what they needed to do and, and we would execute. And it was mostly doing the same kinds of things um, from one mission to the next. So we would train on uh, fundamentals and, and if it were a software team, it would be like practices, like, you know, how do I write good code? How do I write tests? How do I do these fundamental things? In our case, it would be, you know, how do I react to a sniper? How do I react to an IED? Um, and so that we knew the basics of the job. And of course, we all had our, our training in, in things like explosives and, and things like that before we even got there. Um, but the, the specifics of today's job were, you know, something that was just executed on in a, in a short meeting that kind of just kind of like a stand-up where, you know, we'd, we'd get everyone together and we'd say what, we're, what the plan was. And if any of the squad leaders or platoon sergeant had uh, any, any questions or feedback, that would be the time to bring it up. And then we'd go and we would execute on it. And afterward, we'd do an AAR, which is basically a retrospective. It's an after-action review. And, and that's totally jives with agile methods where during the after action review, you talk about what went, what didn't go well, what went well, what would we do different? And, and we would incorporate that into our, our tactics. We call them TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures. So Steve, all three of us have experience spinning up companies and experience at the helm of running organizations and companies. Talk, talk about some of the challenges you faced in, in launching the companies you've spun up. I think part of the the challenge is finding the right people. Um, so I'm in Northeast Ohio, and, and we have you know a, a ton of developers. Um, you wouldn't necessarily think about it, but there's a few local conferences that sell out in you know five minutes for uh, 1,500 or 2,000 people. And so finding the right team members, developers, designers, every everybody that you need uh, is a challenge. And and I think we've always approached that uh, in a way where we wanted to have the whole team. Um, be involved in that at least you know up to a, a certain level of scale, which which we've never really gone beyond, which is a couple dozen total team members. And to do that, when we would do an interview, instead of um, having them come in and, and sit at a conference table and you know have a barrage of different people walk in and talk to them, we would we'd do a little bit of that, um, and we'd we'd do a, a phone screen you know beforehand. But the main thrust of an interview that with our team would always be. Um, them going and pairing with with each different person on the team, or as many as we could fit in, uh, on on real work. And then at lunch, uh, we would always have lunch together as a team with the the new possible recruit, and and then play a game with them of, of some kind. So we'd play you know some kind of a board game or, or social card game or something that could involve a lot of people and be social and and be done in you know thirty to forty minutes so that it didn't take up too much of the day. 
And that gave everyone another opportunity to interact with the the potential hire in a in a different way than than maybe when they have their guard up and they're they're trying to answer all the interview you know standard questions perfectly in the conference room type of engagement. So I I think back to one of the most frustrating experiences I've ever had when I interviewed for a job was when the CEO of a company asked me some of those HR questions that you know like an alien lands in your backyard and asks you to come with them. What do you say? So when you when you're talking about you know sort of questioning the, the the potential employees what what kind of questions would you ask them uh we'd ask them about their experience we'd ask them you know what they knew about us was always an important one why do you want to work here uh would would be very telling if, if they didn't have a good answer to that it was like well I, you didn't really care enough to even find out anything about us or, or why you think you would enjoy working here um you know what? What was a, a project that you worked on that you were really proud of? What was a problem that you solved that that you thought was you know an interesting problem? And we would also have them code on uh, different things, little code katas, and just you know have them talk through their process as they were doing it. So uh, it wouldn't be so much to to try and put them on the spot and, and trip them up if they made a, a, a mistake, um, but we would you know honestly collaborate with them and try and help them solve this this problem. And just see what their thought process was. You know, did they just totally lock up and get stuck and, you know, not not ask any questions or have any help? Um, or, or would they think that, hey, I'm going to write a test for this and, or, or I'm going to break this down into functions? Or would they just start trying to write one huge monolithic block of code that would do whatever the task was? Uh, and that told us a lot about their their experience writing, you know, maintainable software, which was always a, a, a big uh, a priority for us. Yeah, I've had similar experiences with my startups, and we've always had them come in and make a presentation. And one guy stepped through proprietary code. He was working at a big bank, and he stepped through proprietary code. And I said, "Hey, um, does the bank know you're showing us this code?" He goes, "Oh no, no, it's it's all proprietary. But you know, you you know, it's no big deal." We're like, "Hmm, he means well. It's just it's probably you know that's how you know that's how secrets get out and things like that." So it's pretty interesting to hear your. It's pretty interesting to hear your experiences are very similar. Yeah, we wouldn't ask them to show us anything that uh, they didn't have permission to. And, and today, of course, you know, it would be we wouldn't expect every potential candidate to have you know GitHub uh, projects or, or experience. But but if they did, that's huge because then it's just like, oh, well, why don't you just show us a couple of your commits on GitHub that you thought were interesting? And you know, with the tooling available, they should be able to search that up even if they uh, didn't already have it prepared before the interview. Yeah, definitely. And it it just, um, it gives, it gives you a little bit more comfort level in that respect. I'd like to switch gears and ask you a a question about, um, your background that we didn't discuss yet is, um, about, about 10 or 15 years ago, um, I was thinking of getting an MBA and I went to you for some advice because you have an MBA and we're in the same industry. We do start, you know, tech startups. And you told me that it was worth the time. And I joke around with you that I blame my MBA on you. <laughs> but it was a good use of my time in that respect. And I don't necessarily want to talk about you know your experiences learning time value of money and stuff like that. But I learned an awful lot of my MBA about Japanese manufacturing and operations management that I directly brought over in my thinking of Agile, meaning they didn't teach Agile at all or even Kanban and things like that. But learning about the operations management and all of that affected my research when I was thinking of the theory of constraints with David Anderson and things like that. Did you have similar experiences when you got your MBA education? I did. Um, I mean, it wasn't obviously the focus of it. There were a lot of classes on things like accounting and leadership and marketing. Uh, and honestly, the marketing stuff was was very valuable too in, in running your own business. That's you know crucial. 
But the manufacturing and operations side and, and a lot of the case studies that we read uh, definitely tied in with, you know, lean and, you know, lean manufacturing and lean software development. And, and there's a lot of parallels there that, that eventually lead into Kanban and, and some of the folks that you mentioned. And what about um, some of the other classes? Did anything surprise you? Like for me personally, I found the entrepreneurship class the most valuable, which is ironic because when I went in, I was already an entrepreneur for about 10 years. But um, were there any surprises for you like that something came out of left field that you didn't expect to be really valuable that was? The the, the accounting was definitely very valuable for me because uh, I didn't have any background in that. Honestly, when I was first starting that class, I you know, was a couple years out of college with my, from my undergrad. And I remember asking the the professor like what what this had to do with taxes because I thought accounting was all about taxes and and he was like no no I don't do anything with taxes I'm just an accountant I'm like wait what I thought those were the same thing so you know it was it was news to me that you know there was this whole field of of just tracking everything the business is doing and you know that that part of it that that non code part of the business um, I picked up a lot on from from that course and and others it's part of my MBA. Steve, we ask everyone a similar question on the show. Where do you think Agile is headed next? That's an interesting question. I know it's it's the topic of the show. I think some of the biggest uh, challenges for Agile are the fact that we're moving more and more to remote work uh, environments. Like right now, we're doing this podcast, and we're in you know different parts of the country, different time zones. I work every day with folks that are in you know different parts of the country. I almost never work on site with a client at the moment, and that is a challenge. For Agile because uh, so much of, of Agile is that close communication with, you know, ideally a co-located team, a cross-functional team that includes the developers as well as testers and product owner and customer. Um, that's hard to do with remote, uh, but we're doing it. And there's, there's tools that make that easier, like Slack seems to be taking over at the moment. Um, we'll see what else is there in a couple of years. The uh, ability to, to pair program is getting easier with some of the tools. I've been using Screen Hero, which I like quite a bit for that. And I think pairing is is one of the practices that that still doesn't have the traction in Agile that I think it needs to um, because of the benefits that it provides. So I would say that you know the, the biggest challenges for Agile, uh, in my experience, have to do with scaling it to remote teams uh, in a way that doesn't uh, lose out on effectiveness dramatically over having everybody in one room. And right now, I think it, it still loses out quite a bit over having everyone in one room, but it's getting better. And, and the benefits of being able to pick up the right people and, and have people have flexibility in where they work from and when they work uh, adds a lot. Um, but I still think that you get the best results if you could get those same right people all in the same place at the same time. And how about Agile beyond IT? What do you see as far as trends in that arena? I think it is uh, growing more and more popular. Uh, for instance, Kanban is something that most people didn't even have any kind of notion of what that was. Uh, but now Trello is a fairly mainstream tool, and it basically enables Kanban. Uh, and you can use Trello for anything. And you can use it for your grocery shopping. You can use it for sales, marketing, uh, operations, management, manufacturing. So you know that's an example where Kanban is uh, kind of growing into the mainstream and, and was once just something that was part of uh, manufacturing is now a central part of many processes that, that many folks use. Um, so I, I do see you know, that kind of growth. From a marketing perspective, I think Scrum is probably going to continue to have a stranglehold on, on the marketplace uh, when it comes to Agile. And, and most people are going to think of Scrum when they think of Agile in the IT space. 
but I'm personally not a big fan of of such a prescriptive process as Scrum. And, and I know uh, Mr. Forte has some opinions on that too that I think we share. Yeah, I do think that we uh, are are very similar in that respect. And I I, I see longer term the brands going away to some extent and having, you know, more of an agile with a big A process than more of a scrum or a Kanban. And it sounds like you have a very similar view as that. Sure. Yeah. I think the biggest issue I take with scrum is two things. One is it's mainly for project managers. It doesn't offer any practice guidance for the developers or the testers or the folks that are actually writing the software. And it also takes things to a certain point and then stops um, by which I mean, you know, you should have a sprint and it should be this long, let's say two weeks long. And at the end of the sprint, you're going to do X, Y, and Z, you know, meetings and, and other things. Well, maybe those meetings make more sense to do on a different cadence. You know, why do you have to do them exactly every two weeks? Maybe every four weeks makes more sense. And why two weeks? You know, if, if you know, a six-month cycle on a waterfall model isn't good and, and a two-week cycle is better – why isn't a one-week cycle even better? Why isn't a one-day cycle even better? Um, and, and the reason why is because of the overhead of all those meetings and things you have to do at the end of it. Uh, so if you decouple some of that, it's kind of like going from uh, you integrate your software you know, at the end of each release to, okay, now we have a daily build to, oh, now we have continuous integration. Well, you can do that same modeling, get those same feedback benefits if you take the waterfall, you know, months-long process, take it down to weeks, well, now take it down to days. Take it down to each task and push it through in a Kanban style. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And it just shows how by stretching the limits of these brands, we're actually starting to, to evolve Agile itself. And you mentioned, I think, with Daniel's previous question about Agile outside of the organization and saying using Trello for your personal life and things you know, really resonated well with me. A mutual friend of, of, of ours showed me a Trello board for his family and how they use it to help pick up the kids after school and things like that. And I, I've been actually waiting for you to be on the show to ask this question because I think you would have a most unique perspective. So no, so no pressure. And <laughs> um, you talk about scaling agile outside of, of IT and you have a great background doing, you know, a number of startups that you've brought from concept to actually, you know, selling the startup. So you believe in a lot of the lean startup methodologies and, a lot of people in the Scrum and Agile community talk about scaling Scrum and Kanban outside of IT, and they talk about bringing our methodologies to the business. And my argument is that the business already has methodologies, things like the Lean Startup or Six Sigma and things like that. So I always say that the way we scale Agile outside of IT is by merging it more and using a more Lean Startup model outside of IT, even in larger organizations. Do you have similar views or do you, do you disagree or, or agree with that statement? I would I would tend to agree with that. I mean, I think the biggest thing that that you get from agile is, you know, rapid feedback and and good communication and trust. And so if you can do whatever process within your business to get rapid feedback, high high value communication and trust, then you're going to have an agile organization. If you have silos and, and fiefdoms and, and people that are being political within the organization, that's going to destroy trust. It's going to kill communication and you're going to have you know, no ability to get the, the feedback in any timely fashion and the organization is going to suffer for it. So you know, that's those, those principles of Agile, I think, drive the, the, the internal and organizational level scaling of, of Agile uh, more so than any particular practice. You, know, you don't need to get the entire 500-person company into a stand-up every morning um, in order to, to scale Agile for that organization. As long as they've got 
the, the things that I mentioned, I think they'll do quite well. And Steve, what, what things are you working on that you'd like to talk about going through the rest of 2016 and 2017? I'm doing a lot of work with ASP.NET Core. I'm actually uh, the top author for their official documentation. And I'm working on uh, courses and workshops that, that utilize ASP.NET Core, along with my opinions on writing good quality software, uh, domain-driven design, solid principles, things like that. So I have a number of clients I'm mentoring on how to use these practices, how to use ASP.NET Core, and I'm recording videos to, to kind of scale that, that information up. So you can find my videos on Pluralsight. I have a new site called deviq.com that has a lot of resources there too in both uh, article as well as video format. Um, and you can always check out my blog on ourdallas.com and see what I'm working on day to day. Steve, uh, it's been awesome talking to you. Thanks for being on the show today. Oh, great. I appreciate the invite and looking forward to hearing the show when it goes live. Please join us next week on Agile Next with our special guest, Tanya Maslach. A big Agile Next thank you to our sponsors, Fresco Capital and Applebrook Consulting. Visit Fresco Capital at frescocapital.com and Applebrook Consulting at apple-brook.com. We hope to see you next week on Agile Next. In the meantime, check out our website at agilenext.tv.